0: I'm Billy Green, I'm an alcoholic. It is good to be here. I want to thank Danny for inviting me. We uh, we met at a, a conference about a, a year or two ago, and it was the most amazing kinetic talk I've ever heard. And uh, I want to I want to thank my dear friend uh, Rodney, where I'm from. We call him Tubby. He is uh, we we grew up together. Uh, he was been my neighbor, my My golf buddy, my trudging buddy, I love you, man. Thanks for coming out. Uh, Happy uh, birthday to the birthday people. Congratulations to the people counting days. And if you're new, welcome home. If nobody wants you, we want you. So I'm excited to be here. I'm not sure how this talk is going to be for you, but uh, there's a good chance your presence will bless me. So thank you in advance. Uh, I am from from Pasadena. My home group is the Rose City Speakers. I have a sponsor. His name is Gerald P. And my sobriety date is October the 11th, 1994. My last cake was for 24 years. And um, I always like to clear up the ethnic ambiguity.
1: <laughs>
0: In case you were wondering, what kind of human is that up there? What's that? <laughs>
1: I know, I know.
0: So I'm blackish. My my father was uh, African-American. My mother was white stuff.
1: Uh, Scotch,
0: Irish, and English. We were a racially mixed family. In uh, 1969, we moved to a racially mixed neighborhood, which made perfect sense. Um, It was a place called Uh, Inglewood, California. Yeah, it turns out it wasn't really racially mixed. It was just the white people hadn't finished packing yet. They were heading out of town quickly. And so the significance of that is that uh, I would have a white mother. Uh, I grew up with a white mother in a black neighborhood, and I felt different about that. And there were some other things. Uh, I wasn't as athletic as, as my, you know, the guys on the block. And uh, my best friend who lived across the street from me, he died of leukemia when I was 10. Now, none of this makes me alcoholic. But um, I did come to the conclusion that people are not to be trusted, that people will hurt you. They will abandon you. And then I got drunk on some Old English 800 when I was 11.
1: <laughs>
0: and I thought, uh, this I can trust, you know, this I can trust. And and when I found out that alcohol would vaccinate me from my feelings, uh, I was off and running. You know, and by the time I was 15, I was starting to hang out in the worst part of town, which was a section of Inglewood known as the Bottom. And the Bottom was uh, an area of low-income apartments. It was easy to score alcohol and other things. There were a lot of uh, a lot of nefarious activity going on. It was very exciting. I loved it. You know, <laughs> I did. I loved it. Um, but the Bottom was dangerous. You know, it was the kind of place where you could get robbed by somebody you know, you know.
1: <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> like somebody would jump out, give me the money. You'd be like, Tyrone? Uh, we went to school together. right? Like,
1: <laughs> and
0: I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to brag about this, but... Uh, I got robbed a lot.
1: <laughs> I was very
0: good at getting robbed. I would uh, I would argue and negotiate with people as they were robbing me, right? which does not work out very well. I don't recommend that, you know. But I also think that was a feature of my alcoholism because I had trained myself to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And then when I got sober, I realized that I was uncomfortable when things were perfectly fine. I was truly maladjusted to life. Uh, so anyway, something happened in the bottom I won't go into here, but let's just say I was making some very foolish choices, and uh, and I was concerned about me. I'm always still a little too concerned about me. And, and late one night, at a low point, I saw a hotline number, and I, I called it and uh and they and they suggested that I go to a meeting, right? This was in 1980. It was a long time ago. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, this was long before AA you know became uh, you know part of the, the the collective conversation. The 12 steps was not part of the lexicon. I didn't know what to expect. I walked in. you know, I, I didn't know anything, but I knew how to be a newcomer, though, right. I knew how to stroll in late.
1: <laughs>
0: I knew how to sit way in the back in the I dare you to get me sober seat. Uh, but but there, was, there was something about it. There was something about um, your stories, the levity, the honesty, the clear eyes, the warm hugs. And I stuck around for a little bit of time, you know, and I can't be sure, but my hunch is that if I hadn't had that introduction, if the seed hadn't been so firmly planted, I'm not sure I would be your speaker this evening. So this was, uh, actually the meeting was in Redondo Beach, and, and I, uh, um, I, you know, I went to, to Birch and Hawthorne, and I started to go to meetings every, every day. I got a sponsor. I worked the first three steps, and then my sponsor started talking about the searching and fearless moral inventory. And it scared me, you know. It scared me. I was not ready to trust anyone with my story. And I had started uh, at El Camino College on my 40th day. I was sitting sitting in class, and my head said, go drink. And I jumped out of class with no fight whatsoever, and I went and drank. And I came back, and I took a newcomer chip a few days later, And immediately, I felt like a failure. I felt like my experiment with Alcoholics Anonymous was over. But without knowing it, I had learned a couple of important things. And one of them is that sobriety is good. In fact, it's better, you know. It's not easy, but it's better. And so if you be new, I don't know if it is your turn to stay sober. I certainly hope it is, but if nothing else, At least taste sobriety. I hope you roll it around on your tongue. Because if you're like me, in those dark and those lonely moments, it's hard to get that taste out of your mouth. And the other thing that I realized later was that I had severed the magic, you know. And some of you might be able to relate to this. That thing that happens where where one day I need to drink. And virtually the next day, I want to be sober. That magical transition that happens. If Bill Wilson calls it a, a, an act of providence in the 12 and 12. The medical community, they call it a spontaneous remission. And to me, it just seemed like magic, you know. And I couldn't, I couldn't get it back. I would, uh, you know, continue to come to meetings periodically, and I started to do the rounds of treatment, uh not nearly as willing as I had that first go round. And after a couple of years of, of failures, a couple of years of that, I finally got a bright idea. And my, my bright idea was this. It was maybe I'm just doing it wrong, right? See I have a, a romantic notion about alcohol from movies and books. that, that people get dressed up. They go and, and sip drinks in these beautiful bars. And they uh, have stimulating conversation.
1: <laughs>
0: right? And none of my drinking looked anything like that. <laughs> I, hadn't, I had never even seen that in the person. But I was going out of town alone. I was a young man. I'm going out of town alone. I figure I'm going to put this into the, in, in the practice. I'm going to leave the drugs alone. I'm going to drink like a gentleman. And so um, I see a bar that spoke to me. The name of the bar was called The Garage. (laughs) Yes, this this is where I'm going to begin my sophisticated drinking, (laughs) is in a bar named The Garage. And I have a couple of shots very quickly because I'm nervous, and I look around and I notice that um, there's a lot of men in the bar tonight, you know. But I'm new to the bar scene, maybe it's just fellas' night, I don't know, you know. (laughs) I have several more drinks, this time I observed that uh, this is a tight-knit group. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of love in the garage.
1: (laughs) I have several more
0: drinks. Before I, you know, I had that uh, drunken moment of clarity, right?
1: I'm
0: like, is it, is it possible? Is this a, is this a gay ball? Uh, I decided I would ask someone. I didn't know anybody. I figured I might as well ask this very nice gentleman that I was dancing with. Uh, That didn't work out. Um, so I get home. I'm living with my folks. I dropped out of school. Uh, they had a, they have a, a great idea, too. They're like, why don't you get a job and uh, straighten up and fly right, you know, which is, is logical, right? But, um, you know, logic is not a treatment plan for alcoholism. But I comply. I get a job. Uh, probably the best job I could have gotten under the circumstances. It was, it was at a as a, a, a mail clerk in a large law firm in Century City, uh, the bottom of the totem pole, uh, and I drank on the very first day. Couldn't keep it together for one day, and I knew that the jig was soon to be up. I worked about ten months. And a, a coworker, just another kid that worked with me in the mailroom, he slid up to me one day and he said, Billy, can I ask you a question? Now if you don't know, if you're drinking on the job and someone asks you, can I ask you a question, the correct answer is no, <laughs> right, because <laughs> chances are you are not going to like that question, right? And so he says, um, he says, how come after lunch, you always slur your words?
1: <laughs>
0: and I, it just struck me, like, because I knew if he knew, then everybody knew. I also could, you know, detect the concern in his voice that, uh, you know, he didn't want the technical answer. I mean, I didn't tell him well it's the combination of the malt liquor and the methadone, <laughs> etc. Like, I mean, I didn't give him the recipe, you know. But um, but sure enough, I, I was I was fired just days after that conversation, and uh, and I was devastated, you know. But not surprised, like completely devastated, but not at all surprised, right? And uh, and I was devastated because, on one hand, I knew that it was my last gasp. You know, it was the last chance to shirk off this alcoholism and be a regular person. And I knew that that wasn't going to happen. And the other thing that happened is that my dad had been diagnosed with cancer. And so I'm living at home. I'm unemployed. I'm dropped out of school. And so I try to be the dutiful son and and be there for my father you know and i would take him to chemotherapy and if he could eat afterwards we would go get something to eat and spend a little time together and um, and that worked for a while but but as time wore on my father got progressively worse and i got progressively worse and there came a day when he was back in the hospital he was gravely ill and um, And the nurse called late in the evening and said, you guys need to come down here now. And my mother and my sister, who are not alcoholic, neither was my father, um, they got ready to go and and see my father off. And me, the emotional coward that I was, I locked myself in in my room of the family home and I got loaded. And I didn't go. And I loved my father. You know, I loved him. Um, And I mention it because it became a huge impediment in my head to sobriety, right? Because by that time, I'd been in treatment. I had uh, been arrested a few times. I knew it was possible to get several days or weeks sober. But whenever I was separated with a drink for any extended period of time, I would be flooded with guilt for turning my back on my father and other things that I had done. And what I wanted to know from you, Alcoholics Anonymous, is what would I ever do with that shame? I mean, what say you about that? Which is a good question. Of course, you know, I never asked anyone and I never stuck around long enough to get the answer. Until this time, with the help of a sponsor in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I come across this page, 124, where it says, Cling to the thought, as if it were speaking to me. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. Now, if you've never heard that line before, Please take a second to absorb the audacity of that statement. That our deepest, darkest secrets is the, is, the, is the greatest possession that we have. Now, I don't know if that's true for so-called normal people. But for us, alcoholics, that is the message of hope. It goes on to say that is what averts misery and death for, for other alcoholics. Because when I sit across from the new man and he says, Billy, you don't understand. I've done bad things. I get to say, yeah, me too. Me too. So uh, my, my alcoholism and the uh, combination of my father dying kind of uh, fractured uh, our, our little family. And uh, eventually my mother and my sister moved away with no forwarding address. As they should have, you know as they should have. And the bottom fell out of my life and I became a homeless person in Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. Right. So officially, I was in a, a, a homeless, alcoholic, crackhead window washer.
1: <laughs>
0: I was one of those people in the 90s, if you parked your car near me, I just started washing your windows. And hopefully we work out a payment plan after that. And I had learned pretty quickly that the, the dirtier you are, the better. Filth is how you advance as a homeless person, right? So I didn't bathe, I didn't change my clothes. My feet smelled so bad I could have taken off my shoes and robbed a bank with them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and drugs are part of my story, but um, but by this time, you know, I was living in this doorway, and, uh, and alcohol had ceased being a luxury, and it became a necessity. And I had, to, uh, I had to crack open that bottle of gin or that cheap malt liquor, and I would have to drink it down before the police would come and make me pour it out, which would happen about once a week. And often it would be the same police officer. And we would have some version of the same conversation. He would say, "Mr. Christian, I told you you cannot live and drink in this doorway. You know there are stores here and they don't want you around. And then I would say something snarky like, "Well, there you go <laughs> You think it's a you think it's a business district? I think it's a residential neighborhood." We just got a little zoning problem, that's all. <laughs> and that's when he would threaten to take me to jail. He's like, I'm going to take you to jail. You want to go to jail, I'm going to take you to jail. And then I would ask if it was burrito night at Parker Center downtown. <laughs> like, what's for dinner? Um, he, he never took me to jail. Never took me to jail. But he would call his drunk tank. Uh, and these very nice gentlemen, I mean that sincerely, very nice gentlemen, they would come, they would put me in a vehicle and they would drive me a couple of miles east and let me go. Kind of like if you watch the nature shows,
1: <laughs>
0: the way they handle a problem bear. like it's the same, same concept, right? Now the epilogue to that story is I was about five or six years sober. I'm sitting in a meeting in Pasadena. And guess who walks in and raises their hand as a newcomer?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That police officer. I was like, Oh, I will sponsor his ass, like I got that. <laughs>
1: like that was
0: mine. Nobody touched that <laughs> one. which I did not sponsor him, but I did go out to him, I introduced myself, and it didn't ring any bells. Uh, I probably looked a little different after five or six years. And, uh, and then I just kind of quietly leaned, leaned in and uh, I, I mentioned where he might know me from. And I'll never forget, he, he kind of he leaned back and uh, he squinted to adjust his vision. And when he recognized me, he reached out and he hugged me. I mean, he hugged me like he was trying to hug the hope out of me. Like whatever happened to me, he needed to have happened to him. And it was just a beautiful and bizarre moment in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And uh, and I still see him. We don't go to the same meetings, but I see him around town, and it's uh, it's it's still you know startling, but it's it's beautiful. Um, anyway, what happened to me? is the thing that you said would happen, that there would come a day when when alcohol would stop working, you know. And, it, and it, it did not stop affecting my body, but it stopped doing the thing that I desperately needed it to do, which was to shut off my head, you know, and take away the pain. And at that point, I had nothing and nobody. There's a line on page 151 that talks about the chilling vapor that is loneliness. That's exactly how I felt. And I went in uh, to, uh, to treatment for the 14th time. And by that time, I knew that, that treatment can only give me, uh, you know, keep me warm and safe and dry and point me in the direction of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And I finally surrendered. And, and I'd heard that term a lot. And I didn't know, I didn't know the specifics, you know. Um, I didn't even know what was happening when it happened. You know, I just said, I'll do it. I'll do it, you know. And I knew what that meant. I, I knew it meant you go to meetings, you get a sponsor, you work the steps. You read, write, pray, meditate, and be of service. And as soon as I said that, the magic happened. That magical transition. And I desperately wanted to be sober, you know. And so I, um, I started doing things that I had not done before. I slid up to a guy and I said, um, I said, look, I've avoided doing a four-step for 14 years, right? And he proceeded to give me the, the four-step advice I needed to hear. I'm not sure you need to hear it, but this is what he said. He said, um, Billy, doing a four-step is like eating a frog. If you have to eat a frog, don't look at it too long, just eat the motherfucker.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> now I'm just quoting, I don't talk like that, I'm just quoting, right?
1: right? It it
0: was the most brilliant thing I've ever heard now, Paul Sinatra. Right? And uh <laughs> And so I did. I got a you know, I got a sponsor. I jumped on the program like a hobo on a ham sandwich, you know. Um but of course there was um you know, I mean I hit I hit the ground running, the steps and meetings. However, there was a lot of that um that uncertainty, that newcomer fear, right? Like you don't understand. I got problems, you know. I haven't had a job in ten years. Since the job I told you about. Right? I've been sleeping on the sidewalk for three and a half years. That does something to your psyche, you know. The philosopher Nietzsche says, if you gaze into the abyss long enough, the abyss will gaze into you. That's exactly how I felt, you know. And while I was homeless... I had been uh, getting tickets for jaywalking and standing in the street, uh, just a little Mickey Mouse stuff, but I had eight failures to appear in court, so I had eight of them, and my mother and my sister were my only family. They were parts unknown. They were in the Alcoholic Protection Program somewhere. <laughs> And so uh, I, was, I was sitting in a meeting, I was in my first year of sobriety, I was newly sober, and I was, I was sitting there ruminating about my problems. And there was a lady who walked up to the podium, and something about her made my spiritual antenna go up. Her name was Yvonne Palmer, she's passed away. And I never heard I'd never heard it before, never seen it before, but there was something about it that was so dignified, so regal. And she got into the podium and she said that her life didn't change until she stopped telling God how big her problems were and started telling her problems how big her God was. and that, sh- that shocked me, you know, and I didn't know what that meant. I still don't profess to know what that means, but I knew this. I knew that there was a power coursing through me, and it was keeping me sober. Something that I couldn't have done. And I needed to cooperate with that power through this process of recovery, and I also needed, you know, to take directions to face life on life's terms, you know. I was told to go down to the Department of Employment, and so I did. Um, and I was honest with them. I said, I have not had a job in 10 years. They said, you, sir, are chronically unemployed.
1: <laughs>
0: I thank them for clearing that up. Like that. <laughs> but they were nice to me. They, um, they put me in this chronically unemployed program, right? They took me behind the counter. They had a special list of job leads. They gave me bus tokens. They started talking to me real slow. <laughs> and they would, uh, they would send me out on these job interviews, right? Like, every morning, I would just throw out the whatever prayer. Like, whatever you are, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to live, wherever you want me to work, whatever, I'll do it. I've been blessed with the gift of willingness. That happened over and over again. They never got me a job, um, and it wasn't until I was at a little birthday party, I was sitting, I was talking to this, this lady. I told her I was looking for work, and she said, "Well, we need after-school teachers at my job. Why don't you come down and fill out an application?" So I didn't have a better plan. It was. It seemed like the next right thing to do. So I said, "All right," and I. Uh, I put up that prayer that morning. Let me know, God, whatever you want me to do. And so I took the bus. I had gotten sober in Burbank. I took the bus to Pasadena, two-hour bus ride. When I got to the school, the building right next to the school was for sale. It's part of the school now, but at the time it was for sale, and it had the real, the real estate sign out in front, and it had the realtor's name. The realtor's name was Bill Christian. That's my name.
1: <laughs>
0: like, God, I asked for a sign, I didn't think it was going to be a real sign.
1: <laughs> like how
0: obtuse do you think I am?
1: <laughs> now this
0: is important, right, because I go in and uh, I start to fill out the application and I get confronted with that question. Now, if you've ever been in trouble before, you might have a hint of what question I'm talking about. And at school, yeah, there's a lot of nodding going on here, yeah. At a school, it reads like this, have you ever been convicted of any crime? And I was like, any crime? I think I said I it out loud too, I was like, any crime?
1: That's very very, very comprehensive.
0: (laughs) And I sat there for a long time, you know, because I had had very little practice with rigorous honesty at that point. But I knew I was in the right place because of the sign, right? (laughs) And so against my better judgment, I checked yes. And then it said, if you check yes, explain.
1: uh,
0: (laughs) It said, get a three-by-five card from the receptionist, right? No one in the history of this school, I assure you, has ever asked for a three-by-five card (laughs) but me. I get one, and then I'm like, okay, well, I have been convicted of misdemeanors due to my alcoholism, but I'm now a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I I technically should not have said that, but... um, but but I did. And I handed it in. And the eyebrows raised. They were like, oh, my goodness. Uh, they said, you know what? We're going to give you a shot. But you have to go get fingerprinted. I was like, no problem. That's in my skill set. I'm very good at that. <laughs> <I>
1: got that. <laughs> so what?
0: Uh, over the course of the next year, very involved in and not very you know I started to go back to school to finish my degree to become a teacher. I get promoted things are are going well and then I get called into the principal's office, the head of school and the h r lady is sitting behind me on the couch like like just like this gentleman right here, right, <laughs> with a legal pad and uh, uh, looking very stern, very stoic. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. <laughs> All right. On cue. Perfect. Um, and so I knew, like, it was one of those moments when my heart dropped, you know. And the head of school said, look, uh, when you started working here and your um, – and and, and you got fingerprinted, which was through the mail back then Um, she said we got this report back from the Department of Justice that you had no criminal history she showed me the letter William Christian has no criminal history and then she said two weeks ago we got we got this back that you've been arrested a dozen times like nothing serious just like you said But she said, if we would have known then what we know now, we would not. We could not have hired You know. She said, but you've worked here a whole year, and we've grown fond of you. You know. So we're going to keep you. And I remember walking out of there just feeling so exposed, you know, just known in a way that I didn't want to be known anymore. You know and uh, the, the, the next August um, during teacher in service right when uh, all the the faculty and staff are gathered in the room very much like this you know and we were in a big circle uh, doing one of those icebreakers and I happened to sit right next to the HR lady who had been in that meeting right and And so um, the person, the facilitator said, turn to the person next to you. I tried to turn the other way, but that person had turned that way, so I had to go back. (laughs) And so she said, um, she saw my discomfort. She said, I know a lot about you, and I'm sure that makes you uncomfortable. And I said, yeah, that's right. And she said, I just want you to know that I've been sober for 13
1: years. Wow.
0: And it's still hard to juxtapose, you know, um, how broken, how exposed and raw I felt in that meeting months earlier. Only to come to find out, you know, that at the moment that it felt like it was all about to come crashing down. At that moment, you were there. Alcoholics Anonymous was in the room and said, "No, he's with me. You know, this one gets a pass. You know, and I don't know what would have happened if I would have, uh, you know, lost that job. I don't know. But, um, but, but there are a lot of things that it's a big part of my life. You know, I, I taught there for 20 years. Um, I met my wife there. We have a couple of cute kids." we have a couple that's not so cute <laughs> <laughs>
1: just keeping it real you know <clears throat> so I'm gonna
0: <laughs> so we're going to we're going to land this thing a little early tonight I could, I could keep going but but, uh, but I, I do want to say this is that I'm incredibly grateful like I'm incredibly grateful for alcohol anonymous, you know and I see, I see people who are experiencing homelessness. And and uh, and I, you know, I know that that was me. I I used to tell them that I used to be worse than them, but uh, they don't seem to believe me, which I guess is a good thing, you know. And so I am one of those people. As nauseating as it may seem, um, about you know, two thirds of the time, I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for my life you know however you know about 25% of the time life can be hard for no apparent reason you know and uh, and the good news is is that you have taught me how to deal with that you know you have taught me that through meditation happiness is in between the out breath and the in breath and I can if I sit long enough Everything can fall apart. Everything falls away, and I can tap into some real joy. You know. You taught me that um, that don't confuse how I'm feeling with how well I'm doing, because those are not the same thing. You know. And so, um, I'm I'm grateful for this life. There are many more I could, you know. There's a, an embarrassment of riches, but the thing that's most important uh is not this you know it is the, is the intense work with the alcoholic one on one service is the is the uh, the antidepressant that works best uh, for me you know i i i uh i worked with a guy years ago and it, he uh he was he happened to be one of the nicest guys around and he was he was very very bright he, he he happened to be a a priest and a crackhead they they're making those now right um, and once he told me he said he, get, he he told me an old chinese proverb he said he said uh, you know if you help your brother cross the river, behold you have crossed it yourself you know and that has been my experience is that um is that i have a, uh, a whole fellowship of people that I trudge with, like uh, tubby and um, and there's uh that's what we call them in the neighborhood uh, and and people that I work with and people that work with me you know and just so we're clear just to reiterate that this thing is not about me, it's not what I did it's about you. It's about this program, it's about having a sponsor, it's about working the steps, and it's about what God did. And what God did was peel me off that sidewalk, and shook the dirt off of me and prop me up just like he's propping me up right now so he can say, this is what I can do, because I'm God. That's it.